This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. So last week during special music, my wife was giving me that elbow telling me not to sing. I give you permission to sing. I would welcome you. I would beg you to sing with me. This song is just celebrating the great things that God's done for us, all right? So you can sing along. I think the words will be on the screen. Come, let us bow at his feet. He has done great things. See what our Savior has done. See how his love overcomes. He has done great things. He has done great things. done great things we dance in your freedom awake and alive oh jesus our savior your name lifted high oh god you have done great things you've been faithful through every storm You'll be faithful forevermore. You have done great things. And I know you will do it again. For your promise is yes and amen. You will do great things. God, you do great things. Oh, You free every captive and break every chain, oh God, you have done great things. We're dancing your freedom, awake and alive, oh Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high, oh God, you have done great Sing that again. And break every chain, oh God, you have done great things. We dance in your freedom, awake and alive. Oh Jesus, our Savior, your name lifted high, oh God. 
was awesome. So today, uh, I, want, I want to show you something kind of cool. Um, the, uh, and if I can get this to work, it's going to be even cooler. All right. So uh, this is the globe. You guys are familiar with that? Yes? The planet we live on? All right. Um, and, oh, by the way, when I was messing with this, I, I saw something really cool. This has nothing to do with my like, message and what I'm going to tell you about. But look at this. The Pacific Ocean, it's like half of the world. That, it's enormous. See that? Like, if you've got a globe at home, just like turn it where you can see the Pacific. And it's, it's half the world. Pacific Ocean's huge. You heard it here first. Yeah. Aren't you glad you came to church? You inspired to go out and make a difference in the world? Awesome. Cool. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, here, here we are in uh, southwest Missouri, um, El Dorado Springs, south central El Dorado Springs, the rough part of town, right? Um, and on the day when they took this picture of our church, nobody was here. Um, but uh, I, I want to show you something because last year, late last year, the most expensive single residential property in the world ever was listed for sale. And uh, you might have known this already, but it was not in El Dorado Springs. So we're going to go over and show you where it was, um, where it is. Uh, we're going to go to California, and you might guess we're going to go to the Los Angeles area. And much more specifically, you might guess this too. We're going to zoom, zoom in on Beverly Hills. Now this is Beverly Hills, and this is where all the rich people's houses are. But if you go up into the mountains behind Beverly Hills, that's where we find the property that we're going to look at. And there, on top of a mountain, on the most exclusive little area of Beverly Hills at the end of a very long road that goes up and let's get an angle and take a look at this there's a very long road that they built up from the rest of this neighborhood and when you get right here it comes to a large motorized gate that is 16 feet tall and 30 feet across and then you keep going up this little road and you get up to the top of this mountain and you find this place where they chopped off the top of this mountain landscaped this very beautifully, a long driveway that has a rock feature with water fountains all through it, LED lighting on both sides of that driveway all the way down through these trees, and at the end of that driveway you find a blank slate. This property, without any mansion on it at all, was listed late last year. Realtors in the room, get ready to wet yourselves. One billion dollars, with a B. One billion dollars with no house on it. But here's why they think it's worth a billion. You, you look at this hill and look down at, at Los Angeles Valley. Uh, downtown Los Angeles is over kind of to the east. You can see Hollywood. You can almost see the Hollywood sign on the mountains over there to the east, up top. Uh, downtown Los Angeles in the distance on the very top left. You can see those skyscrapers. And then if you swing your gaze to the southwest... You can see the Pacific Ocean and see all the way out to Catalina Island. And this has an unobstructed view for over 100 miles, except most of you who have lived in or been to Los Angeles know that with the smog in Los Angeles, your unobstructed view is never 100 miles. Um, but this is the most exclusive residential property ever listed in the world. 
and it was for sale late last year for $1 billion with no mansion on it because the realtors reasoned that if you have the money to build this, you're going to want to build your own dream on top of there. And so they purposefully landscaped it beautifully and left it blank for some guy to come in and if he's got a billion bucks to spend on the land, then he can afford whatever he wants to spend on the mansion that he wants to put up there, right? Now, it seems like an amazing place. And uh, you guys can go ahead and switch over to that, that picture up there. But here's, here's the caveat. You always know there's a catch, right? What's weird is this. This place has been owned through the years by a string of people who had grandiose plans for it. But they haven't been able to hold on to the property. In the 70s was when they first started, they cut off part of the mountaintop and kind of restructured the, the, the lay of the land up there. Oh, and this has deer on it, which is nothing in L.A. does. So if you're a deer kind of guy, I mean, you know, some of you would be like, I don't want to live in no south, you know, in Southern California. I got to, I got to hunt me some deer. Man, you could sit up there in your billion and a half mansion and pop some deer off your balcony. Um, but this, this place, it was owned in the, in the 70s by the sister of the Shah of Iran. Um, and some of you remember your history a little bit. You know, the Shah of Iran was, he and his royal family were just insanely wealthy. They built amazing palaces and things like that. Well, his sister bought this and was going to build a palace on it. Um, and then their family was overthrown. Their government was overthrown. They lost all of their fortune and she wasn't able to ever build on it. Then it was owned by a string of others, and sometimes it was difficult to tell who actually owned it because of the shell corporations and the holding companies and such. Merv Griffin, some of you remember him, he owned it for a while, but he couldn't afford to hang on to it, uh, had to sell it. There was a mysterious, in the, in the early uh, 90s, there was a mysterious, unidentified member of a Middle Eastern country's royal family that owned an interest in it. And the rumors were that he was a major figure in international terrorism, and he might have been the guy that ordered some of those beheadings earlier this decade. But the founder of Herbalife owned it until he passed away, kind of young, unexpectedly. Um, and he tried to leave it to his nine-year-old son through a trust. Uh, but some of the trust partners were shady, and it ended up in a big legal battle. And uh, then it went on the market last year, and one of the local real estate experts that they interviewed about this property uh, for an article that was written up in Town & Country magazine about it, uh, said that it's, it's most likely, he said there's a hundred people in the world approximately who can afford a property like this. He said 50 of them are people that are listed in the world's wealthiest lists that come out, but about half of them are people whose wealth is not on the legal books anywhere. And he said those guys are the ones most likely to actually buy this property because an international bad guy is most likely to want like the prestige that comes with this, Okay like above every else in Beverly Hills looking down on them. You understand the thinking there? So he said the most likely customer here is an international bad guy of some kind, a drug lord from South America, uh, a sponsor of terror who's a powerful member of a royal Middle Eastern family, a, uh, so, some other kind of shady character, okay? And uh, he said, and, and in this article it said, a development battle for this hill that's just called The Mountain, um, but a development battle would be highly public and pro protracted, lasting years. Any plans could fall victim to time or other circumstances. The mountain's past owners serve as cautionary tales. 
And Silverman, the real estate expert, said, death, political revolution, second thoughts, things that all the money in the world can't prevent are likely to happen. I'd be very surprised if a buyer is able to actually build on it in their lifetime. Um, The people who more than anyone else in the world have financial security and control over their own destiny, it seems that those people have an impossible time hanging on to that control that's ultimately proven to be an illusion. Last month, the mountain, another chapter in its story, had to be put up for auction to pay for over $200 million in liens from the companies that did the landscaping, that have financed it. $200 million was owed, and it went up for auction, and it ended up selling for $100,000 back to the lien holders. So basically, one ten-thousandth of the price that they were asking, it went for on that auction. But even that's tricky, because it basically sold back to the lien holders. So out of that $200 million that they're owed, now they're going to hope to recoup that by reselling it. It's basically like the bank foreclosed on it, but it wasn't a bank. Because another interesting part of this, the lien holders, it was a holding company owned by two guys. One of them is the son of one of those subprime mortgage crooks that went to prison in the late 2000s decade. Okay, the son of that guy. And there's theories that like that guy's still pulling the strings from prison. Okay, the other member of this holding corporation is a mysterious Middle Eastern royal family member who is unnamed. But they think he's one of the guys that's on the international terror list that uh, if the Navy SEALs find him, they don't bring him in, you know. And so those two guys own this holding corporation. What a messed up deal, right? Like to own this mountain, you basically have to be crooked and evil and you can't hold on to it, right? And Beverly Hills has the most strict zoning laws in the world. And so there was a guy who decided, okay, all these crooks can't hold on to it. Let's put, let's do a philanthropic kind of effort up there. He's going to put like a museum and and cultural center up there. And the uh, Beverly Hills Homeowners Association was like, no, it's residential only because we don't want any corporations up there. And they pet their little tiny dog in their leather bag that costs $4,000. That wasn't in the article. I, you know, you're, you're tracking with me. When you see something like that in the world that's really messed up, okay? And it's easy to find things in the world that are messed up, isn't it? When you see something in the world that's messed up like that, Somebody said this once, and I just think it's so brilliant. When you see something messed up in the world, turn and look at Jesus. Turn and look at Jesus. It's easy to see the messed up stuff, but turn and look at Jesus. So let's do that this morning, okay? Open your Bibles. Mark chapter 10. Your Bible or your app or whatever. Mark chapter 10, verse 17 is where we're going to start. It's a well-known story about a rich young man. Some people call it the rich young ruler. Mark chapter 10, verse 17. <clears throat> I'm reading from the NIV if you've got an electronic version that you want to switch to that. Mark ten seventeen. <clears throat> As Jesus started on His way, a man ran up to Him and fell on his knees before Him. Good teacher, He asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. 
You shall not defraud, honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Very powerful statement there. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And right there, some of your Bibles will have like a a footnote. Some manuscripts say, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Verse 25, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed. They said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly, I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or father or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age, homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields, along with persecutions. That's another unpopular statement of Jesus. In this world, you will have trouble. You'll get persecutions if you follow me. Not something that you put on an inspirational poster with a beautiful landscape behind it. You know, you will be persecuted, Jesus. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. And that's where we'll stop for now. You know, there's something satisfying in a weird way to us about that Beverly Hills Mountain story, right? Because, yeah, I may not be rich. At least I'm not a jerk like those rich guys, you know. There's something satisfying about people who have more than we do, but then they can't hold on to what they have. And if we're honest, we get this kind of grim, twisted satisfaction out of seeing people who are way up high and then they fall. But today, I'm going to make us all a little uncomfortable because you don't have to be a billionaire for this story to apply to you. We live in the United States of America. And in the United States of America, even if you're poor, you're actually pretty wealthy compared to most of the world. We have electricity. Almost all of us have indoor plumbing. Almost all of us can afford good toilet paper. If you, if you can afford good toilet paper, get good toilet paper. If you... Come on, if you go to the bargain barn and get nasty, cheap toilet paper, you're going to use four times as much, and it's going to end up costing you the same amount. Get good toilet paper. That's it, I'm done. No, I'm kidding. If you don't learn anything else today, at least get good toilet paper. I'm so glad that our church bathroom stalls have decent toilet paper. It doesn't feel like canvas or something. So... Aren't you glad you came to church? <laughs> but we, compared to most of the world, we're pretty wealthy, aren't we? Look at this story of the young man in light of how we tend to look at the world, okay? In studying this story, I, you know, researching this, trying to read what experts have written about this story and kind of get some insight on it, I found something kind of interesting. Because a lot of modern American writers who write about this story 
Start making excuses for what Jesus said. And that's really interesting. Because if you read experts who wrote about this in like the first century when the church was suffering, it's a very different take that they have on this. If you read what biblical scholars from like India write about this, it's very different from what like Western society writers write about this story. Because when you read something that a modern American writer writes about this story, often you'll see something in there about, you know, Jesus probably wasn't going to have him actually give away all his wealth. Jesus just wanted him to be willing to give it away. But you know what? If, If you just look at the story on its own, it really just looks to me like he wanted him to give it all away. He just wanted him to give it all away. Not just be willing to, but do it. And yet, there, there's a precedent in the Bible for when God asks you to release something, to surrender something, that He gives you blessing in return. There is that precedent. But there's no guarantee of it. And yes, He might have gotten more back after He gave all of His wealth away. But the fact that we look for that is a uniquely Western, like wealthy world kind of perspective on this story. In particular, there's one writer from India who just absolutely didn't even mention that part of it. But in our Western thinking, we tend to think, oh, but there's got to be some way that Jesus is going to pay him back for this. But no, there's no guarantee of a payback. Jesus just wants him to give his stuff away. And in America, where we're self-made men and women, you know, and we, we think, well, he worked hard for that, and his dad probably, you know, he, he, and we, we have this, oh, there's this, tension where we can't stand the thought of just giving it all away. And, and we have this attitude that we are self-made men. You know, nobody ever gave me anything. I work for everything I have. Well, what about all those who fought and died to give you the opportunity to even own anything, period, right? Like we stand on the shoulders of giants in so many different ways. And to say that you're a completely self-made man or self-made woman is kind of ignoring that sacrifice that so many have given to give us what we have here today. For me to even stand up here and preach in a public room in front of you about Jesus is because people have sacrificed and made it possible for us to do this where we don't have to be hiding in an underground place, right? This morning. And so when when we we have this attitude that we're self-made and we, we hold on to everything we've got because we deserve it, and so we look for excuses for what Jesus said. But Jesus doesn't need excuses. You don't have to apologize for what Jesus said. Jesus told this guy to give his stuff away. Here's another part of this story that modern writers tend to think is kind of strange. The disciples were amazed when Jesus said it's hard for rich people to get saved because even they had this perspective that like the rich people in their synagogues, the Jewish worshipers, like they really, they must be blessed by God. They must be God's favorites because they're rich. So, They must be holier than most of the rest of us. And it's kind of a thing that they thought too. And then Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And verse 26 in this verse says, the disciples were even more amazed. And they said to each other, who then can be saved? But these these Western writers, there was a thing in like the the 80s and 90s, there was a, a, a thing that was kind of passed around as common knowledge among 
American Christians, and I, don't, I couldn't track down who originally wrote this. But when Jesus said, camel, go through the eye of a needle, someone wrote this, and it's been totally debunked since. But someone who was supposedly an expert on how things worked back then when Jesus said this, told this story. said, when Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to be saved, here's what he was talking about. The walled cities back then had city gates that they would close at dusk. And in those city gates, if you came after it got dark, the gates were closed, but there was a small like postern door in the gate, man-sized door, like the size of one, you know, half of one of those doors, uh, that you could get into after dark and get into the city and be safe from the like, marauders that roamed the hillsides, right? And, but a camel obviously had a really tough time fitting through that door, so they'd have to like, take all the packs off the camel and like, get it to kneel down and scoot, and they'd push and pull and yank the camel through the gate, and finally the camel would be inside the city. And so they're saying, you know, it's, it, it wasn't as impossible as it sounds, but, you know, it was just a really difficult thing for a rich person to be saved. Camel go through the eye of a needle. They called that door, supposedly, the eye of the needle, right? But in researching this, I found out this. Guys who actually have done digs over in Israel and are experts on archaeology from the time say, they didn't build doors in their gates. That was like a European thing in the Dark Ages, they didn't call that the eye of the needle. People, people just made that up and like spread it as something, you know? Who, at some point, some guy had to write that down and like spread it as truth, right? Why? Why did he do that? And it seems like it was uniquely like a, an American thing in the 80s and 90s in American evangelical Christianity for that to be spread around as, oh, here's an explanation for what Jesus was saying. Why did he do that? Because we want, to, we, we want to rationalize this thing that it's difficult for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. And so, you know, well, it's not actually that impossible. It's just, it's difficult. And so we want to like have this cultural rationalization where we say, now Jesus wasn't really saying like camel through the eye of a needle. He was just saying something that's difficult. But it turns out that doesn't hold up to scrutiny. But, but what it shows us is we have this need somehow to explain away what Jesus said. But here's what Jesus said. For a rich person to enter the kingdom of God, it's easier for a camel to go through that teeny little space on the end of a needle where only thread should go. Grab that camel, mash it down, stick it through there. That's how difficult it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of God. And again, in the United States of America, doesn't matter how poor you are, you're richer than half of the world. So the bad news is, Camel, eye of the needle, us, kingdom of God. Jesus actually said that. The disciples were amazed. They were even more amazed. Verse 26. And we're sitting here like, okay, this is not great for us. It's impossible for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God except God, right? With God, anything is possible. Verse 27, Jesus said, With man, this is impossible. So it's not just difficult. It's not just low likelihood for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. It's impossible, except for God. And that's where we find, that's where we find the hope in this story, right? Because we're Americans. We're, we're rich. We're these camels trying to go where the thread should go. If we're trusting in our wealth, in our power, or our control 
or our reputation in the community or our good deeds, or if we're trusting in anything, we're lost. It's impossible. Except God. With God, anything's possible. And this gives us hope. So the rationalizing that Jesus wasn't really wanting this guy to give it all away and the trying to come up with a way for a camel to maybe possibly go through the eye of a needle, those are classic cultural rationalizations that are trying to apologize for what Jesus said, and we don't need to do that. And here's one more cultural tendency that we might have when we look at this story. A lot of modern writers writing about this focus pretty heavily on the end of the story where Jesus says, you know, if you give up stuff for him, you'll get so much more stuff in return. And so they kind of present this as an investment prospectus. Invest in Jesus and you'll get stuff back. But in the poor parts of the world, man, they they hardly even pay attention to that part because invest in Jesus, release your control of your life to Jesus. And what do you get back? You get Jesus. You get Jesus back. I don't know about you guys. The thought of eternal life in heaven on streets of gold with an eternal buffet sounds great, but it lasting forever without Jesus there, I'm going to be horribly shattered and disappointed. Heaven without Jesus isn't much for me to want to go there. And if you are looking to follow Jesus because you want to have the reputation of a good person, if, you want to, if you're following Jesus because you've heard some preacher tell you that if you invest in Jesus, you'll get more stuff back here on earth, man, you do get some stuff because our eternal life starts now. It's not just out in the future. He blesses us over and over. He provides for our needs. Yes, He does bless us. But all that stuff, and even heaven and streets of gold and whatever else, all that means nothing if it doesn't have Jesus in it. But when you surrender your control of your life to Jesus, you get Jesus. Guys, you get Jesus. And I hope that some of you get this because I'm worried that some of us are going to leave and we're not going to get this and we're just going to keep going about our our lives the way we have where we're trying to live like a good person. But we're not letting go of the control of everything that we have to Jesus. But look at this story. In that verse where it says that He he loved him. He looked at him and he loved him. Uh, that was verse 21. Mark 10, 21. Jesus looked at him and loved him. And then what's the very next thing he does? That's when he tells him, give away everything you've got. But after he looked at him and loved him, the very next thing he did was say, give it all away, man. Give it all away. Come and follow me. Maybe because he loved him? And when Jesus asks you to surrender control of whatever it is in your life that has you dominated, what he's asking you to do is to open up yourself to the very best possible thing that he can give you. Because he's saying, your freedom from that thing that you love the most is what's going to allow me to have central place in your life. And that is worth so much more than any of the stuff that you're holding on to. Jesus told a story in Matthew 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Guy goes, finds the treasure, and he realizes he's selling everything he has, but what he's getting is worth so much more than that. 
No matter what Jesus asks you to give up, He is the treasure who's worth so much more than that. Here's the weird thing about that verse, and if you could put that back on the screen for just a sec. This verse is a, is a standalone story. He doesn't explain it beyond right there, what He says right there. This might actually be talking about God seeking us as His treasure. We're not sure. Because what did Jesus do? He left heaven. He left everything He had to find us as His treasure. Whichever way this story goes, whether it's us seeking Him as our treasure or Him seeking us as His treasure, He already gave up everything that He had for you. So when you give up things that He asks you to release control of, it's because He loves us and wants us to have a greater treasure than we're seeking on our own. What we want is too small. The things that we're holding on to are too small a treasure. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I'm going to read a few verses there. Verse 14 is the first one I'm going to read. Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And He died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for Him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the, rec- the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God is willing to be reconciled to us. And in Christ, look what we become. We become the righteousness of God. We become the goodness, the perfection, the righteousness of God. Because when God looks at us, he doesn't see our sin anymore. He sees Jesus. So the greatest treasure that God has, we become that treasure. His righteousness. We become that righteousness. He gave up heaven to seek us to become reconciled to us. I hope you get how powerful and essential this truth is. Because if we're handcuffed by the fear that, you know, the fear that if we really trust Jesus enough to give him everything, he might take away some of the things we love. If that fear handcuffs you, Holding on to those things instead of holding on to Jesus above all, that isn't a small issue. That changes everything. If, if you're holding on to anything that comes above Jesus, then you're missing out on the everything that Jesus can be to you. Hebrews 11.6, Without faith, it's impossible to please God because anyone who comes to Him must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who earnestly seek Him. Do you believe God exists? I don't assume that everyone in this room does. I know that we might have people here who haven't decided where they stand on this yet. And if you're here and you're not sure God exists, thanks for coming. I, I, I really mean that. Thank you for coming and checking this out and, and trying to investigate what's true. And I believe God will reveal himself to you if you keep investigating and seeking truth. But if you believe God exists, do you believe he rewards those who earnestly seek him? Do you know that Jesus is an infinitely, profoundly greater reward than anything else the other things that we want that are too small 
If Jesus is above all in your life, then there's hope. If we're reconciled to God in Christ, God's not counting our sins against us. If Jesus takes our sin, then in Him we can become the righteousness of God. So today I wonder if any of you came to church with even a tiny hint of a question in your mind like this rich young man asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Or you said, Jesus, what, what does God want from me if, I, you know, if you've already committed yourself to Him? And if that's you, then ask Him that question right now. Would you stand? I'm going to give you just a moment to just ask Him that question from your heart and see if He speaks an answer into your heart and soul. What is Jesus asking you to surrender this, today? The thing you love most? Your money, your possessions, your reputation, maybe your career? A relationship, your plans for the future? Is Jesus asking you to surrender your own family, your own children? Are you making your children or your family something that comes before Jesus? Or have you given your children, your family, and and all of it to God? You've given up the control of all of that to God. Saying, Jesus, my kids are yours. My family is yours. We talked about the crazy impossibility of holding on to control of a mountain in Beverly Hills. But really, it's impossible to hang on to the controls of your own life, too. What are you holding on to that Jesus is over here saying, drop it, leave it behind, follow me? What is that thing? Ask God about that as we pray. God, would you show us if there's something in our lives that's coming above you, that we're trusting more in our own expertise or our reputation or whatever it is, more than in Jesus, the one who gave himself for us, the greatest treasure and greatest reward we could possibly have. God, would you show us what's holding us back, that that thing that we want is too small compared to the inestimable worth of knowing Jesus. God, help us. Would you make us different as we leave this place? Do show us if there's something we need to release control of to you. In your name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for coming. We hope you have a great week. We'll see you later. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.